All right. Feel free to take a seat. <clears throat> Feel free to take a seat. I, as it turns out, I am the guest preacher that we were talking about. So, um, yeah. I thought that would be a funny joke. Um, okay, so the other day I was, uh, I, I was working on something and I needed, I needed nice pictures for the project that I was working on. And I was like, oh, you know, I've got a phone. If pictures are okay. I've seen a lot of other better pictures out there. <clears throat> I wonder if I can <clears throat> figure out a way to get better pictures. And so I start researching, you know, my phone was like three years old. It had been a workforce, workhorse for me. It had been working great. And so I started to research. You know, I was like, okay, is there like a, is there like a camera I should get or like a better phone that I should get that's going to like up my photo game? And I start researching phones. And like as soon as I started researching phones, this like feeling of just disdain started to grow in me for my old phone. And I'm scrolling through like online, looking at like the new iPhones and stuff, and I'm like, portrait mode? Like what? And I keep looking down at my phone, like scowling at it, like as I, and my discontent with my phone is just growing. And, and I was gonna like wait a week before I, I went out and got, you know, a phone to take better pictures for him, but I started, I got, got so frustrated with my phone as I'm researching it, like this thing is horrible that like I couldn't even wait like 24 hours. And I went out the next day and got a new phone. And as I was driving out to get my new phone, I'm looking at my phone, I'm like, this thing is so useless. Why did I ever even buy this thing? Might as well just hook a telegraph up to my house because this thing is so useless. Its photos are like bad police sketches and I need a phone that's going to give me good photos. And just like that, my joy and my satisfaction in my phone evaporated. Whereas 24 hours earlier, I loved that thing. I would go to war for that phone. It had served me so well. But the second that I started scrolling through and looking at what else was out there, my discontent welled up inside me and I was scowling at my old phone. And I did end up getting a new phone and yes, the photos are better. <laughs> but not that much better, right? Not that much better and it, it charges wirelessly now. Like that's, that's about it. And it struck me as I was thinking about this, how easy it is for our joy to leave us. How easy it is for something that we're satisfied in to just stop satisfying us. How fickle we are in the way that we take satisfaction and joy in things. And I, it struck me as I, after I had kind of like removed myself from the situation and calmed down a little bit, right? And there's a million things that do this for us. Perhaps one of the quintessential examples is you get a new job and it's a great job. It pays you more. The hours are better. They even have like snacks at this new job. Like the, the coworkers are great. But then one day you accidentally hear, maybe it's with, a, a, maybe it's with somebody that you got onboarded with. All of a sudden you overhear how much they make. It's more than you. And you're like, wait, what? You making more than me? Let me look at your resume. You pull them up on LinkedIn. All of a sudden, your discontent just grows. You just got a great job. You upgraded everything. But all of a sudden, you're unhappy. Just like that. That's all it takes. That's why, that's why in most large companies, talking with other coworkers about your compensation is a fireable offense. Because every manager in the world knows that the second that you start having that conversation with everyone, you're going to be like, what am I even doing here? What are these guys? This is a joke. And you're going to get mad. It's so easy for us. Even if we walk into like a better situation all around, the second we start comparing, the second that we give that chance for envy to creep in, our joy leaves us. Maybe you're one of those people who, when your sports team loses, day ruined. 
It's too bad it was on a Saturday because this is one of my only days off and my team lost and now my day is ruined. Maybe you're one of those people and just everything about the day is, is colored in gray after that. Some of y'all, <laughs> some of y'all, if, if you don't have 10 ounces of coffee in the morning, you literally go from Aladdin to Jafar. <laughs> like it's that easy for your joy to leave you. It's because we're fickle. We're so fickle and joy is a fickle thing for us. It doesn't necessarily have to be, let alone when we actually go through times of hardship. You're like, wait, not having 10 ounces of coffee is, is not a time of hardship? No, it's not, as it turns out. Well, let alone when we actually go through suffering, then the despair that we can spiral into. You see, joy is hard for us to get and then maintain. So we ask ourselves this question, how do we get a joy that lasts? How do we get a joy that can, that can, that's durable, that rises above our circumstance, that allows us to have contentment in a whole lot of different situations? How do we get a joy that lasts? And you know, today's the last sermon on, on the prodigal son in, in Luke 15, which is the passage that has the parable, the prodigal son in it is going to speak about that. It's going to speak to us about a joy that lasts. So let's read it uh, right now. It's going to be Luke 15. Uh, hang on. Luke 15, CSB 11 through 32. I'm going to have it up here on the screen. He also said, a man had two sons. This is Jesus talking. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up, went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, 
You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So as we think about joy and its fickleness in our lives, really the first question that we got to ask ourselves is what robs us of joy? What is it that's actually taking our joy away? What robs us of joy? Here's the first thing. It's worship of creation rather than creator. Look at what it says in verses 12 and 13. This is what the younger brother says. Give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. He's looking at his dad and he's like, thanks, dad. It's been great, but I've realized that your stuff is actually going to get me what I want. So will you please give it to me now? And then it says this, where he squandered his estate in foolish living. And of course, the estate doesn't last. The estate doesn't last. The younger brother thinks his satisfactions in his father's things rather than in the father. And look, the world is full of great things. As we all know, things that bring us great joy and pleasure. But they're not designed and meant to give us a satisfaction that lasts. We can even see that with the younger brother, where he squandered his estate in foolish living. It's gone. Riches go away. Your health leaves you. Relationships go on. People pass on. The created things of the world are not meant to give us a lasting joy. They crumble under that weight when we put them on that throne. Here's how Romans 125 says, I think it sums it up well. Romans 125 says this. This is Paul speaking to the Christians in Rome. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. That's how Paul summarizes it. And that's what we see this younger son doing. But look, we've all done this. There isn't one of us here who hasn't put some enormous burden of satisfaction and ultimate joy in something created, whether it's relationships or income, financial security or health. All kinds of stuff. We've all looked for joy in creation, just like the younger brother has. And this is one of the things that Jesus is drawing out to us. When he tells the story about the younger brother, he's like, is there anything that you recognize here? Is there anything that you recognize? Look, if you have a friend, if you have a friend that knows you, knows you so well, whenever you say stuff like, oh, this is my favorite such and such, this is my favorite candy, or I've always thought about going here, they take note. And they give you great gifts because they're considerate of you and they're loving you. They give you, they, they're always paying attention and they give you things that you really love and that really bless you. Now, let me ask you this. If you had to choose between the gifts that the friend gives you and the friend, are you ever going to choose the gifts? Of course not. If you've got a mom who has loved you your whole life, from elementary school, middle school, she's making you breakfast every single morning, loved you your whole life, are you ever going to choose the breakfast over the mom? No. So why do we do that with God? Why do we look at God's created things and say, you know, thanks God, I see what you're doing. I see your creativity and your wondrous generosity. But I'm just going to I'm going to take this from here, just like the younger brother. This is going to do it for me. And then we leave. Imagine a mother who's been making breakfast for her child for years. And then one day, the son or daughter says, Hey, Mom, you know, this has been great. 
It would be even greater, though, if you could just make the breakfast and leave it here, not be here. That would, that's what would be even better. Can you do that for me? How heartbreaking for a mother or for a friend when, when, when we, those of us, choose created things, the gifts, over the gift giver. What a painful thing. You see, the father in the story of the prodigal son gives a feast at the end. But we're more interested in the world's feasts. We're more interested in what the world has to offer. And our hearts are tempted to put created things on the throne of our life. One of the things that I see all the time, especially in American Western culture, not so much in other cultures, but in the West, especially in the United States, financial independence and like financial security is like the end-all be-all. Like I was listening to this uh, podcast the other day about, with a billionaire, and he was laughing about the fact that one of the things that happens when you become a billionaire is everybody thinks you know everything about everything. So people would ask him, like, what about this? He's like, well, I have no idea about that. Like, I just was smart in this one thing. Everybody thinks he's a genius, right? And he was just laughing about that. And we, we put that same, like, when somebody's achieved financial success and independence, we think, oh, they've, they've figured it out because that's the end-all be-all. Financial independence, that's security. Whenever the economy turns down, whenever stuff starts to get bad, at least I can fall back on that. This is one of the mantras. This is one of the sermons of the culture. Financial security will do it for you. How young were you when you bought your first house? How, what, when did you start making X number? How old were you? Are you making more than your parents? Are you making more than your friends? Like, that is what the culture says to us. But Jesus is saying, that's not where you're going to find it. If you doubt me on this, just think of any rich person and celebrity. Are they all mentally and emotionally happy and healthy all the time? Every celebrity that you've ever known? Because I get the feeling if we went to Hollywood and went to the mental hospital there, I think we'd see a different story. And I don't think any of us would be shocked by that. What robs us of joy? Worship of creation rather than creator. Here's the second one. This is what, that was the younger brother. Here's what the older brother shows us. Look at what he says. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him, his brother's home. And the only thing this guy can think about is what his brother's getting. The only thing he can think about is the material goods that this brother is getting to delight in. He's comparing himself to him. He's envying him. So this is the second thing that the older brother shows us. What robs us of joy? Envy and comparison. This is something that we see more in the religiously cold-hearted ones amongst us. The rule-following self-righteousness that comes with the older brother. All the older brother can think about is his things. He's got a heart of religion and works. And it keeps, you know what's crazy? It keeps him out of the feast. The father's throwing a feast. And the way that this older brother's heart is causes him to not go in and enjoy the fattened calf and the music and the dancing and the celebration. His envy and his comparison and a great stroke of irony keeps him from experiencing the material goodness of the world. One of the things he's, look at what he says. All these years I have slaved for you, he says. All these years I have slaved for you. So much just anger in those words. You know why he feels like a slave? Because he is a slave. 
He's a slave to his envy and his comparison. He's looking at his brother and he's, he's, he's envying what he has. And he says, he's got it better than me. He's got it better than me. And then with the comparison, he's like, but I've been more righteous. I've followed more rules. God owes me. My father owes me. That's the economy of a religious heart. That's not God's economy. That's the economy of a religious heart. And it traps him outside of the feast. He's stuck in his sin. There's this website that somebody showed me the other day called Status. Let me give you a hint. It has to do with your status, right? It's called, I think it's statusmoney.com or something. And basically what you do is you go in and you, put, you attach all your bank accounts. You attach all your credit cards. You, can, you, attach, you tell it about all your assets. And then Status goes, hey, okay, you're richer than this percent of the world. These people are richer than you. By the way, here's some financial products to help you close that gap. Status. This, is, this website is like quintessential sermon of the world. This is what's going to get it for you. And let us help you get there. <clears throat> what robs us of joy? Worship of creation rather than creator and envy in comparison. This is what robs us of joy. So the next kind of obvious question is, where can we find everlasting joy? If it's not in these created things, even though we're constantly tempted to just double check, is it though? Even though we're constantly tempted to it, where can we actually find everlasting joy? What does the text point us to? Here's the first thing that the text points us to. God's generosity. Look at verse 22. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. A ring and sandals. The younger son just blows a huge portion of the father's estate, comes home in shame and despair. And how does the father respond? Generosity. How crazy is that? That's how the father responds to his son's sin. The goodness of his riches. His generosity. Even after he wastes everything, the relentless giving attitude of this father shows through. But you know what's also interesting about this, like we talked about in some of the previous sermons, when he clothes him like this, when he gives him these things, it's also a rejection of when the younger son was like, oh, I'm not going to be a son anymore. I guess I'm just going to go and be a servant. This is the father being like, no, you're a son. When he clothes him with the best robe and puts the ring, he's telling everybody, this is my son. He's not a servant. This is my son. And he gives him forgiveness. And he gives him grace. And he gives him unconditional love. And this is perhaps the greatest aspect that Jesus shows the generosity of his father with. The forgiveness and the grace. That's perhaps the most powerful image here. Where can we find everlasting joy in God's generosity? But sometimes, sometimes we doubt this. Sometimes maybe we feel like we're in famine. Instead of feast. Sometimes, even, sometimes it's even worse than that. Sometimes things are actually going good. And we're like, oh, this is kind of awesome. Things are kind of going good. But then we say, oh, that means something bad's coming. Something, something God has blessed me with this thing, but it's only a matter of time until he teaches me a lesson. It's only a matter of time, this goodness, this is a sign. It's a sign that he's going to bring the hammer. Sometimes we look at God. And we say that when we receive good things from him. He can't even give us good things without us worshiping them and second-guessing him. 
But that's not the father that Jesus shows. That's not the father that Jesus shows. The father that Jesus shows is a God who's generous. That's it. Sometimes we feel like we're in famine instead of feast. And you know what? You know what? This is important. Can you? Uh, there we go. It, it is God's right to discipline you. It is his right to test you. The Bible says all over the place that you're not even a legitimate child of God unless he disciplines you the way that a loving father does. And it feels sometimes, sometimes and that's painful. Sometimes, in the, look, the Bible talks a lot about that. There's whole books in the Bible dedicated to suffering. And the Bible talks all over the place about walking with God in suffering and how he's sovereign over it and how, and how he can cause all things, no matter what, to work together for good. That's all true. But that's not what Jesus wants to point out here. That's not what he wants to show us in this parable. What he wants to show us is the generosity of his Father, that we have unfettered access to the feast of his forgiveness, to the feast of his grace. You never don't have that available to you. And while sometimes God walks you through famine and difficulty, Sometimes he gives you the delights of the world, too. Both of these things happen to us. But you never don't have access to the feast of his grace. This is what Jesus wants to point out. He's good. And you have access to this goodness all the time. And he never changes his heart in that way towards you. That's why when the son comes to him in all the shame, and the father just surrounds him and wraps him up before he even confesses, this, Jesus is saying, this is who my father is. So if, this, if you struggle to see the goodness of God, if you struggle to see his generosity, or maybe you are in a, in a time of, of hurting right now, in a time of famine, ask God to come alongside you and remind you and to wrap you up in the boundless, limitless nature of his grace. Because that will never get taken from you. You always have access to that feast. You always have access to that feast. <clears throat> so uh, the other day, my wife and I were in Dublin, Ireland, not like some random town in California or something. We were in Dublin, Ireland, and we had been planning uh, this trip for a while. And, you know, when you plan a trip, you know, like spending money to go to like a foreign place, they're like looking at, trying to plan out so it's like, it's fun, right? You don't want it to be bad. And so we're planning it out and my wife is like, hey, you know, what about this thing? And we're like, what about that? And we're making decisions. And one of the things she says is, what about the Chester Beatty Library? And I was like, that sounds boring. <laughs> this is a library. What is it? She's like, it's just like a, you know, museum with some stuff. And I was like, no, we have plenty of museums. We're not going there. She's like, okay. So we get there. And we're in Dublin, walking around. And by the way, the other thing you have to know about me <clears throat> as it relates to this story is that I love ancient biblical texts. I love like the actual texts that are like 1,000, 1,500, 1,800 years old. I don't know why. I'm just obsessed with them. And, um, you know, I, but it hadn't crossed my mind because I'm in Dublin. Like, you know, usually those things are in like Jerusalem or New York or Paris, you know, in the Louvre, that kind of thing. And we're walking. And my wife's like, hey, we're, we just finished something? She's like, hey, we're right next to that, uh, that Chester B. Library thing. Are you sure you don't want to go there? And I was like, 
no, like, it sounds super lame. <laughs> and she was like, it says here that they have, like, an ancient collection of biblical texts. I was like, we're going. We're going now. And we walk in there. We pay to get in the thing. We walk in. And I'm not even kidding you. What many say is the most important collection of ancient biblical texts on the face of the planet. You see, there's a lot of copies of biblical texts. There's less that are really, really, really old. This stuff is from the second and third century. For those of you who can't, can't do the math on that, that's like 100s and 200s, okay? So ancient. And you know what else is crazy about this? Not only ancient, but it's like giant chunks. Like so much of that kind of biblical manuscript stuff oftentimes is fragments, page here, fragment here which is still awesome, we can still put it all together. That's why one of the reasons I love the ancient biblical text so much is because of, it shows how reliable it is. There's nothing that compares to it. But this in the Chester Beatty Library, the collection is like pages and pages. It's like books of manuscripts. And I was like, I walked in and I'm looking at this like a page. And I was like, I almost missed this. I literally was almost in Dublin. Who knows, maybe for the last time in my life. And I almost missed one of the greatest physical testaments to the reliability of the Gospels and the Lord Jesus. And I just felt so wrapped in God's generosity. Literally, I'm walking past the place and I, I tried to not go. I tried to be like, no, that sounds super lame. But God was like, nope, you're going in here, pal. You're going in here. And literally, I'm looking at this thing. I just wanted to go and lay down in the middle of the museum and just like sing, even if they would have dragged me out. I, like I wanted to do that. I was so wrapped up in the graciousness and generosity of God. And you know, here's the point. The God that Jesus paints is a God who wasn't willing to even spare his own son for you. And you think that he doesn't delight to give you the little things. You think that it's not his heart's delight to bring you overflowing joy in the tiniest of things. He wove you together in his mother's womb and he saw what you would do before time began. And you don't think that he was considerate and thoughtful enough of you to give you little wonders. That's the generosity of God. Because the God who is willing to go to the cross is willing to give you the little stuff too. And I just felt that. Oh my gosh, it was so awesome. Um, you know what's, uh, you, might, you, know, you might be like, cool, Adam, that's a cool story. But that is the most boring biblical text. That's like the lamest thing I've ever heard of in my life. To which I say, don't hate how Jesus made me, okay? <laughs> to which I also say, God knows what that is for you. God knows what that is for you. He knows your heart. He knows the secret things that will bring you awesome joy just in an hour and in a day and on a weekly basis. You know, it's crazy as I, uh, I was thinking about remembering this on Thursday. And I was like, oh, that was so awesome. Let me go and pull up my pictures of it because they had like four pages out of the biblical text. They had like four pages out. I'm like, let me go and see what those pages were. Any guesses? Any guesses? what the passage was that was on display that day. If you guessed the prodigal son, you would be wrong. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. But you know what's crazy though? It wasn't Luke 15. 
Uzuk 14, the chapter before. This is it. That's the page. This is a close-up of it. Dated from the beginning of the third century. These pages are from the oldest surviving copy of the four Gospels. Oh, my and the Acts contain, uh, Gospels and Acts contained in one manuscript. Until its discovery, biblical scholars did not believe that the four Gospels had been accepted as canonized as early. It is likely that the books were organized, Matthew, John, Luke, Mark, Acts. Luke 14, 17-33. Title of that parable? Parable of the Great Banquet. The parable of the Great Banquet. You know why? Because our God is generous. He's the God of the feast. He wants you to know that when you read the prodigal son. He wants you to know his boundless generosity when you read through the prodigal son. And like I know that so often it's hard for us to be thankful and to see the generosity. So often our sin clouds our hearts and causes us to be blind to it. That's a reality that we deal with. That's a reality that we deal with, but we need to go to God in his word and in prayer and ask him, Remind me, because my heart is fickle, and my joy is like a phone, a smartphone life cycle. Remind me who you are. This is why community is so important. This is why time with God and his word is so important. This is why teaching yourself, as the psalmist does, to delight in the small and big things in life and to, and to look back to God as the giver of those things is so important because we need to train ourselves. We're on an escalator, man. When we're on an escalator heading towards, towards, towards not thankfulness. <laughs> I couldn't think of a word other than not thankful. Um, like our hearts are taking us away from God. And we have to actively war against that to see his generosity. Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. <clears throat> Keller, Tim Keller points out in, uh, I love this so much. Tim Keller, where can we find everlasting joy, God's generosity? Tim Keller points out in John Chapter 2, which is an awesome uh, story. It's a historical narrative that John the Apostle records, and it's about Jesus' first miracle. It's called the wedding at Cana. And the story goes, Jesus is there with his mom and his family, and they're at a wedding, and the wine runs out. And then Mary goes to Jesus. Mary is Jesus' mom. Mary goes, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And then Jesus looks at her and says, what does that have to do with me? And then Mary doesn't even respond to him. She just turns to some servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And then Jesus walks up to six large purification vats and has the servants fill it with water and then turns it into wine. Six vats, about 25 gallons each, the text says. For those of you who are slower on the math side, don't worry, I pulled up a calculator and did it. It's 150 gallons of wine. It's 150 gallons of wine. You know how much that is? It's half a jacuzzi. <laughs> it's literally half a jacuzzi. And the text says, the, 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 the guy who's like planning the party is like, this is like the best wine. Where was this? And it's kind of freaking out about it. And yeah, I was listening to a preacher the other day. This is neither here nor there. But I was listening to a guy talk about this in John 2. And he was like, <laughs> he was like, how do you think Mary knew to ask Jesus to do this unless he was doing it at home? And I was like, I was like yeah, maybe, maybe that's true. Who knows? Um, but uh, 
It's crazy. I mean, half a jacuzzi. It's so insane that this is the first of Jesus' miracles, the narrative says. This is the first one. And it's, you know, like, think about like a concert, like the grand entrance, the first song, or like in a, in a basketball game where they're like announcing the guy, this guy from such and such high school, two-time MVP, da-na-na, and he comes out. This is Jesus' grand entrance, 150 gallons of wine. In fact, his hype man, a.k.a. John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for him and tell people about him, John the Baptist, his hype man, pointing to him, this is the first miracle. What? Why? You know what's so crazy about this? Look at this. This is the end of the narrative, what it says about it. Jesus did this, the first of his signs. In Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is what Keller points out. It calls it a sign. It's a sign. What does the sign say on it? Where's the sign pointing? What's it trying to say? For Jesus' first miracle, his grand entrance. You know what it's trying to say? That he's the God of the feast. The promised one is here, and his generosity is overflowing. The Prince of Peace has come. The kingdom of God is here. And that's cause for celebration. This is John 2, the wedding at Cana. Jesus came to bring celebratory feast and great joy. I think that's why this is his first. Where can we find everlasting joy in the generosity of God and in Jesus? Here's the second thing. In the person of Jesus. In the person of Jesus. John 6, a few chapters later. Look at, what it said. Look at what Jesus says. So this is right after, all right, let, me, let me go back here. because I got. This is, this is right after Jesus feeds the 5,000. Another material miracle that Jesus does that wows people. He, another like crazy thing with food, right, that he does. Right after he feeds the 5,000. And you see, we see the father's generosity in the prodigal son, right? We see it with the younger brother, his grace, his forgiveness, the clothing that he puts on him. We see it with the older brother, comes out and pleads him. He should be like, in my opinion, I would have chewed out my older son, but he doesn't. He gives him grace, generosity, shows both of these sons generosity, right? So, and then Jesus, flash forward, right after he feeds the 5,000, this is what he says. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Then a few verses later, he says this, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. This is John 6. You see, here's what Jesus is saying. After the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle at Cana, 150 gallons of wine. This is what Jesus is saying. These material wonders are meant to lead you to me. That's one of the reasons I put them in the world. To bring you to me. Because I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who's not going to let you down. I'm the one that's going to give you the joy and the comfort that you're looking for. Not these wonderful things I, I gave you to lead you to me. This is what Jesus is saying. And in the same way that we experience the goodness of bread and the goodness of wine, 
and we taste those things. So too, Jesus is literally inviting us to experience him. Not just know him. The demons know who Jesus is, but they haven't experienced him. They'll experience his judgment. But Jesus is inviting us to experience the core of who he is, his love and his generosity, the everlasting feast that he brings. In uh, the movie uh, Dead Poets Society, maybe some of you have seen it. It's a Robin Williams movie, so great. It's basically, Robin Williams is this uh, poetry teacher, and he's teaching this like all-boys school about poetry. And one of the awesome quotes that he says in it is he's, some kid says something like, oh, so, you just, so we just read poetry? Like, that's what we do? And Robin Williams is like, we don't just read poetry. We let it drip from our tongues like honey. That's what Robin Williams says about poetry. What's he trying to say? You can't, you don't just, reading poetry doesn't mean you experience it. You need to revel in the beauty and the majesty of the words and what they convey and the images that they bring to your mind. That's how you experience poetry. If you're just reading it, you haven't experienced it. If you're just reading it, you haven't experienced it. John Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, a famous American theologian and preacher, says this about God. There is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense on the heart of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. This is like a person saying, oh yeah, honey, I heard it was sweet. You tasted it? Nah. Then when you taste it, you're like, whoa, okay. Look, Jesus wants you to taste of him. He doesn't just want you to know about him. He wants you to experience him. Where do we find everlasting joy? In the person of Jesus. Not just a mental ascension or a knowledge or even just a reading of him. He wants you to experience and feel his goodness and grace. The forgiveness that he brings, free of charge. If you're not a Christian, I invite you into this. I invite you to come and taste the goodness of the Lord. Because he's the bread that doesn't run out. He's the thirst quencher for eternity. And he's so generous. He's so generous. So as we experience Jesus this way, as we experience him, the next logical thing is, what is a life filled with joy? What is a life filled with lasting joy? Remember we talked about as opposed to the fickle joy. What is a life filled with lasting joy look like? What do we go and do? Here's the first thing. A proper appreciation of the material world. Look at verse, uh, verse 23. This is the father. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. This is the God of the feast. He loves material things. He created material things, and he uses them to lead us to him. But you know what? We can enjoy material things even beyond the way that we're enjoying them now if, if we let them lead us to Jesus. That's how you really experience material things, to let that joy lead you to the ultimate joy. Proper appreciation for the material world. But you know what? Besides allowing us to enjoy things better, it also frees us 
from material addictions. It frees us, this truth, and who Jesus is, writes our relationship with creation, and it frees us from destructive addictions to the material things of the world. Money, things, even relationships. You can relate to alcohol rightly instead of getting drunk. Which, by the way, in case you need to hear me say it, getting drunk is a sin against God. And he thought of wine, but he wants you to relate to it rightly. He doesn't want you to put it on the throne. He doesn't want you to put any of his created things on the throne. He wants you to let those things lead you to him because he wants to give you even more than that. He wants to give you more than that. Frees us from, even from things like human relationships, things like codependency, when we, when we need to be needed, you know, codependency, where you're like, oh, I need this person in my life just because they need me and it makes me feel good about myself, right? That's codependency. Frees you from that, where the ultimate joy is coming from Jesus and not as created things. What does a life filled with lasting joy look like? It's a proper appreciation for the material things of the world because we let God be worshipped as God. And we let those things lead us to him instead of putting them on the throne. What are the things that you put on the throne? What are the things that you feel the Spirit stirring in you that you could not do without besides Jesus? What are the things that you, if, if this thing disappeared tomorrow, that's the end for you. What is that? Could all things be taken away and you would still delight in the God that promised you eternal life? and gives you the riches of his feast now, the riches of his grace and forgiveness now. Proper appreciation for the material world. Here's the second thing. A life with eternity in mind. Look at this. Sorry, I have just passages on passages today. I love this. Isaiah 25, 6-9. Look at this. This is uh, in the prophet Isaiah. So this is before the time of Jesus. On this mountain... The Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine, the best, because that's who God is. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all peoples, the sheet covering the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken on that day it will be said. Look, this is our God. We have waited for him. And he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is God's promise. The end of time. At the end of all things, this is what he will usher us into. And the feast in the prodigal son is representative of this as well. When we go to be with God, you know how he describes it? It's a feast. It's a feast. Just like in the prodigal son. A life with the, this is the second thing. What does a life filled with lasting joy look like? A life with eternity in mind. Eternity means, if we have eternity in mind, it means we're not investing in the perishable things of the world. Our eyes are set on Jesus' promise to us. And we know what he's taking us to. And that one day, he will bring death to death and wipe away the tears 
one day he will bring that to us in a life that's focused on eternity doesn't invest in the perishable things. Yes, you should save. Yes, you should be a good steward with what you have. Yes, you should enjoy the things in life. That's one of the reasons that God put them there. But these aren't the ultimate things. Is your life prioritized in a way that's investing in the imperishable? Or are you just building barns, putting your stuff in them? Look, I don't know what God's going to say at the end of all things. I don't know when we get there what he's going to say, but I know what he's not going to say. You know what he's not going to say? So what was your net worth? Remind me. Did your investment strategy beat the S&P 500? Because, you know, most people can't do that, did you? How old were you when you bought a house? No, he's not going to say that. We need to invest in the imperishable. This is what a life filled with a lasting joy looks like, a life characterized looking into eternity and the promises that this God has given us. It means we invest in the imperishable. It means um, eternity in mind also gives us longevity and famine. Because, look, I know that there's probably several of you out there today that don't feel the feast of God right now. You feel the famine and the agony and the pain, and you feel lean, not bounty. But the promises of Jesus remind us that one day he's going to take that from you. You can have his feast of grace and glory and mercy and, and, and forgiveness now, and one day he's going to take all the death and the sickness and the pain and the tears away. Looking to eternity gives us longevity when it's horrible right now. Because Jesus knows what it's like here. He went to the cross. He knows. That's why he paints pictures for us like Isaiah. We have waited for him. What does a life filled with lasting joy look like? proper appreciation for the material world, and a life with eternity in mind. So, in conclusion, how do we get a joy that lasts that's not tied to the smartphone cycle? How do we get a joy that lasts? Here's how. By looking to satisfy our longings in the giver of good things rather than in the good things. Letting creation lead us to the Creator. Because he's the one that gives the bread, that takes away the hunger, the joy that lasts. He's the one that gives us to us eternal life. That's how we get a joy that's, that doesn't fail, a joy that's everlasting. So when we take communion, we remember Jesus in the upper room. Ironically, communion is a meal because it points to the God of the feast, the God of all generosity, and when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Take this bread, take this wine, and remember me. So that's what we do when we take communion. We remember him in his walk to the cross, in his willing sacrifice for the joy that was set before him, the Bible says. He endured the cross for our sake. Let's pray. God, You are so generous to us. But God, in our brokenness, it's hard for us to see that. In our brokenness, it's hard for us to see the good things that you bring. God, we ask for your help today. Remind us in community, 
Remind us in your word. Remind us in prayer. Remind us just with wonderful things like we saw with the, the texts, God, that you did for me. Remind us who you are. Don't let our hearts lie to us. Don't let our hearts lie to us that you aren't generous because you are. And we declare that now and help us when we don't believe it. God, fill up the hearts of the suffering today who don't feel your feast. God, wrap them in your forgiving, undeserving grace and love. And speak to them when your head is next to theirs. Speak to them the promises of eternal life. Speak to them that you are enough for them. And give them comfort, God, and peace. God, we thank you that you are the God of the feast. How generous you are. We love you so much. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.